There's seven components of force that influence the behavior of connective tissues. Let's just talk about a few of them. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. So very exciting. New hats arrived over the weekend. So I'm off to a great start on a Monday. Um, we had a bunch of discussions on IFSU. Actually, it's an ongoing discussion on IFSU University um, in regards to yielding and overcoming behaviors of the connective tissue. So I thought, so I would lean into that one a little bit and, and flesh out some, some issues. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's capable of influencing the behavior of the connective tissues. One of the things that we wanna to start to, to recognize um, is the, the, this is something that the nervous system is not involved with, and it's, it's actually important that it's not. The nervous system's a little too slow in, in many of our movement behaviors, and so we have to rely on the behavior of connective tissues, and, and so the connective tissues are viscoelastic, so they alter their stiffness and behaviors based on, on these seven components of force. So we've got magnitude, location, direction, duration, frequency, variability, and rate, all influencing um, this connective tissue behavior and so um, because the, the viscoelastic tissues behave as they do, they, they smooth out movement, um, they deform based on, on their inherent stiffness and, and how much energy is stored and released um, will also amplify and dampen movement. And so if you've ever read anything that's associated with like stretch shortening cycle, you'll get an idea of how some of the tissues behave, but we want to start thinking about all of these tissues um, behaving the same way. And like I said, it's going to be based on degrees of, the, of their inherent stiffness. So I got a couple of examples here. So I got a couple of a uh, couple of bands. I think these are from Elite. If you guys need to get some bands, they're Elite FTS. Um, but you can see the difference in stiffness in the two bands. And so both of them are are deformable. The the thicker band is going to take a lot more force to deform but it's also gonna release a lot more energy than this band, but this one actually can, can move quicker. Um, so we have to kind of look at, at how all of these tissues uh, behave and we can influence them differently based on the, the context um, in which we are applying forces. And so let's talk about um, the influence the, or the combined influence, if we will, about uh, magnitude, location, and duration. So we don't talk about duration a lot. I talk about rate a lot because I think it's very easy to see. And then I've got this really cool little representation with my Silly Putty that I've done a bunch of times on some videos. And Silly Putty's viscoelastic, so it's a nice little representation. So when I pull on this gradually and I get this nice little elongation, um, but if I pull on it, very very quickly then of course I get it to snap so so this behavior of this tissue is good a good representation um, of how the stiffness can be altered so when we think about the magnitude of the load so the magnitude of the load is going to cause more deformation of, of tissues and it, depending on where we apply the magnitude of load those tissues are going to respond so it's going to be very contextual um, 
So for instance, if I need to deform bone versus say fascia or a tendon, it's gonna take a lot more load or force applied um, to, to get this tissue to, to deform. So I can actually target the skeleton under, several, un, under many circumstances, I should say. And, and so we'll, we'll talk about here in, in just a minute. Um, if I think about duration, the longer I apply a load to a, a connective tissue, I will get a stress relaxation response. And so I can actually promote more of a yielding action, if you will. And so if we look at a couple of examples, if I took an overcoming static squat, so what we're, we're seeing here is a squat where we're pushing up into the pins. So the, the rate of loading is very, very quick. So I'm promoting a lot of stiffness through the system. The force application, because it's a maximal effort up into the pins, the force is very, very high and the duration, because of the, the effort involved, the duration is gonna be short. So, so my connective tissues are behaving in a stiffer manner, which would be primarily an overcoming bias. So the action of those tissues is biased towards overcoming. Now, if I change the context, so now I'm gonna move into a yielding static position in the squat. What I will have is an initial loading rate will be very, very similar to the, to the uh, overcoming, but because the duration um, is a little bit longer, so I'm, I'm dealing with a little bit less load here, um, I can do this over a number of repetitions and I can extend the duration of the exposure to the connective tissues, <clears throat> excuse me, so I'll get more of a yielding action. So I'm actually teaching the connective tissues to store more energy. And so if you look at the uh, tendinopathy research where they're talking about extended isometric protocols to, to increase the amount of load on the tendon, you'll see this stress relaxation response and you'll see how this yielding strategy um, will evolve. Um, the box squat provides us another element where we can, we can redirect the, the load to a specific location. So if I'm looking at a box squat and I'm actually deloading my weight onto the box, I'm actually reducing the amount of muscle activity that I'm using. And so what I'm actually doing is like, I'm, I, I'm actually distributing that load now um, to the connective tissues, including the skeleton, which is very, very important, especially for your big, strong power lifters or your offensive linemen, et cetera, et cetera, that need these, these high force components where we need to, to load the skeleton and release that energy for the highest forces possible. And so when we deload to the box, that's how we can direct the load towards very specific um, elements of, of the connective tissue system. And so we get a yielding strategy through the skeleton. Now, we gotta really be careful with loads as far as how we're doing this. And so this is one of the reasons why you might see the difference in, in the loading strategies for, for box squats depending on the qualification of a lifter. And so a, a less qualified lifter will use a higher percentage of their 1RM in, in a box squat to create this yielding strategy because they need more energy, they, a certain amount of energy, I should say, to deform the skeleton. And so it's just a higher percentage of their 1RM. As you get stronger and stronger and stronger, that percentage drops because I only need so much load to deform the skeleton. If I, if I increase the load too much, I deform the skeleton too much, I create too much of yielding strategy and I don't get any recoil off the box. And so I lose that element of, 
of explosiveness where I can store a lot of energy, but I can't release it un unless I use the, the optimal load. That's why you see the percentages going down. So again, for a less qualified lifter, maybe it's 70% of one RM on the box squat. For a very high qualified lifter, it might be 45 to 55% of one RM. Um, I would go to Louis Simmons' uh, West Side um, uh, articles on this because again, a brilliant strategy. They did it through observation. Um, but I, I think that we can actually look at this through the connective tissue behaviors as far as strategy is concerned. So I hope that gives you a little bit of information or a little bit of an understanding about this yield and overcoming action in regards to the connective tissues. If I can answer a question for you, or if you want to go deeper than this, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. If you're a power lifter, is the reverse hyper a possible solution for your back issues? Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. I'm crunched as usual. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are always busy, busy days. So I got to dig right into the Q&A, which comes from my friend Charlie Reed, and Charlie has a really good question. He's been paying very, very close attention and he is on point. Um, he is asking a follow-up question um, from last week's Coffee and Coaches Conference call where we were talking about lumbar flexion and, and squatting. And he says, more specifically, I'm curious if you suspect that powerlifters find benefit in the reverse hyperextension exercise because it attempts to create some of the mechanisms that I've described um, from being able to deep squat, such as counter-nutation, posterior expansion, stimulating blood flow from the bone above and below uh, the spinal disc, and more favorable cellular adaptations as far as maintaining disc health. So this is actually a really, really good question um, because again, there, there's there's certainly some elements of, of powerlifting that, that are going to challenge um, maintaining some elements of, of health because we're dealing with, a, a, if we made a problems list, you got high levels of, of compressive strategy to lift heavy things, which again, we wanna minimize the expansion strategies because the minute that we release any of our concentric orientation, we're gonna accelerate potentially in the wrong direction, which would be downward under most cases. Um, we don't have a, an effective yielding strategy because we want high levels of stiffness in, in the tissues. And, and this is obviously just a byproduct of, of magnitude of, of load. You're gonna get some spinal compression that's associated with this. So we have compressive strategies throughout, but because of the loss of range of motion that's gonna be associated with lifting heavy things, we have to create orientations that are going to allow us to one, access motions to execute the exercises, and number two, we have to create propulsive uh, uh, strategies into the ground. So we have to produce IR to the ground. So that's gonna require some orientation issues, especially with the pelvis, and then we get a lot of that spinal compression. This in turn reduces blood flow to the disc. So the, so the, the disc is, is dependent on blood flow from the bone above and below. If we compress the bone, we can actually reduce that blood flow and then we start to get the degenerative changes in, in, the, in the disc. And so what we have is this one big giant compressive exhalation strategy that is very, very useful for lifting heavy things. It's fun to do, um, but there are secondary consequences. And so what we may wanna to do to restore some measure of health, some measure of movement capability, comfort, such as you know pain reduction, et cetera, 
is we want to try to restore some of these inhalation mechanics that will provide some yielding strategy, um, improve our ability to turn, um, so, we're, so we're not relying on, on compensatory strategies just to produce normal movement um, throughout the day. So um, what we want to look at then is, is what do these inhalation mechanics look like? So I've got a little representation of a video. It's very subtle, but hopefully you, you can actually see this. And so what I did is I put Eric prone on the, uh, the table in the pur uh, purple room, and I just had him breathe a little bit. And so we actually created a little bit of a compressive strategy on the anterior aspect of, of the abdomen and pelvis. So you can actually see the expansion posteriorly. And so what we're getting, we're getting a little bit of sacral counter-nutation, which is our yielding strategy on that posterior side. So we might be able to acquire this in the reverse hyperextension exercise because of this initial starting position that provides us with an anterior compression that may pr promote the posterior expansion. And so um, our, our mechanics here are, would be similar to what we might see in the initiation of a toe touch, where we want to see that, that sacral counter-nutation um, and, and posterior expansion. Um, so again, we're moving somebody from, from this, this strong compressive strategy that's going to be in that middle to late propulsive um, um, element of, of propulsion, and we want to move them backwards to, to early, and this might be a way for us to do this. Now, we've got some issues with this. So the position is favorable, yes, but we also have to deal with load-based issues. So too much load is gonna promote a compressive strategy because I need that to, to lift heavy things. And so I may not be able to access the yielding strategy under those circumstances. So we're gonna start with, with um, a, a lighter load for sure to make sure that we can capture the strategy that we're actually shooting for. The second thing is, is a technical issue. And so when we do these things bilaterally, so anything that's bilateral symmetrical is one is going to create a little bit more of a compressive strategy. It's going to limit our ability to turn. And so one of the things that you'll see with, with the execution of reverse hyper is, is the fact that people will sort of exceed the, the motion capabilities of the hip and they will start to drive this anterior orientation of the pelvis even in prone. And so you can actually overcome the, the benefit of the yielding strategy by, by taking this um, way too far. And so one of the things you're going to want to want to try to do is is limit the motion to to the hip excursion because by driving the motion through the hip primarily you're going to promote a little bit of that that posterior lower compression but you might actually capture your sacral nutation under those circumstances if you drive it farther you're going to create that anterior orientation we get the the compression of the sacral base and that's exactly what we don't want to do because that's what got us here in the first place the other issue might be velocity and so you'll see reverse hyper is performed in any number of, of ways if we use high velocity remember that, that as we apply velocity to viscoelastic tissues we have a rate dependent change that might make them stiffer. And again, we won't be able to utilize our yielding strategy, which is the goal under these circumstances. So we're not talking about a performance related adaptation that we're chasing here. We're talking about recapturing elements of the yielding strategy, which will hopefully promote health, reduce pain, etc. Um, an alternative that you might want to consider then is to use a single leg variation of this. So we take advantage of the prone position, but by driving through a single leg, we can actually maintain a yielding strategy on one side. We create a little bit more of a compressive strategy on the other side. And now we're actually creating a little bit of a turning 
uh, relationship between the sacrum and so we can actually capture some of that yielding strategy one side at a time. This is actually one of my favorite ways to do this, um, especially with your bigger, stronger human beings. Um, because it's just a lot easier to drive compression on one side because they're already compressed on both. We magnify that compression just a little bit and we actually get the benefit of the yielding strategy on the opposing side. So we'll do this um, in any number of supine exercises. So we've used supine cross connects and things like that um, in, in a couple other videos previously. Um, but when we're talking about the reverse hyper, we're using the basically the same same strategy by doing it unilaterally. So Charlie, thank you so much for the question. Um, if I didn't answer your question effectively, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and post another question. I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and Yes, it is perfect, as usual. Today is Wednesday, so that means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means we have the 6 a.m. coaches, uh, coffee and coaches conference call, as we do on Thursday morning at 6 a.m., so please join us for that. IFSU up and running, ready to go. We had our last free Q&A this week. I got a Q&A coming up on Monday for members only, so that's going to be kind of exciting, and then the content is going to start rolling out, so make sure you get signed up for that. Okay. So, I got a cool question um, about, about some squatting comparisons that I think will be useful on many levels um, because we're going to talk a little bit about the overcoming and yielding actions that tends to be very, very confusing for some people. And, and so let's dig right into that. And so this comes from Sandy. So that's big S, small A, small N, big D, Sandy. So Sandy says, uh, I'm stuck trying to understand how a regular squat, inhale down, to yield and exhale up to overcome converts to a competition squat. So she's talking about uh, powerlifting, um, where you set the pelvic position for both yielding and overcoming at the top and hold until the lift is complete. When inhaling at the start to get tight, counter-nutate the sacrum, which isn't ideal for overcoming at the bottom, how would you coach that at the pelvis? And she wants me to use the uh, pelvis to demonstrate, so that's gonna be kind of easy. But the thing that we need to understand here is that, so Sandy, your interpretation is, is actually not correct. So you don't, you don't have a, a clear understanding of, of what we're talking about with the, the yielding and overcoming, because you're looking at yielding as this overarching kind of uh, position thing where you're including the counter-nutation, the, the, the ilium, um, pelvic floor, and guts, etc. in this. So what I want you to understand about yielding and overcoming is the yielding and overcoming actions are the distribution of, of the forces through the connective tissues. We don't wanna include the, the contractile element, the musculature in that, because that's what's actually going to um, alter the rate at which the connective tissues are loaded, which determines whether we have a yielding or an overcoming strategy. So when I load connective tissues very, very quickly, they become very, very stiff and overcoming. When I, when I load them very, very slowly, they actually yield. And that's where we start to see the expansive capabilities, even with situations of concentric orientation of musculature. So a concentric yielding strategy is a concentric orientation. So a muscle that is, that is moving into a shorter position, but the connective tissues are allowing the expansion to occur at the same time. And that's how we distribute some of these, some of these forces. So right away, we have, we have a, a little misunderstanding that, that hopefully that explanation is going to help. Now, Let's compare two squats. So, so you mentioned the, like, what we would consider a traditional, maybe like a body weight squat or something like that. 
So as we start at the top, we would be in a relatively inhaled, sort of a counter-nutated position at the top. So we're gonna start bias towards an, an inhale as we move through this middle area of the, of the squat. So plus or minus 30 degrees of your sticking point, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see a, a movement towards a more concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm, internal rotation of the, of the, the hip joint, and nutation of the sacrum. To get below that level, we're going to have to re-counter-nutate. So we're actually gonna see more movement at the ilium in this case to achieve this deeper hip flexion position. To get into that depth, we have to have eccentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm to get there. Um, if we don't have that expansion downward, you're never gonna get into that deep squat. Now, let's take this over to powerlifting. Under most circumstances, there are exceptions to the rule, but under most circumstances, when we're talking about a powerlifting style squat, we don't want um, as much eccentric orientation. In fact, we hardly want any at all. We want just enough to get competition depth and then get back up. So, so the powerlifting squat is all about staying as close to this maximum concentric orientation as possible. We're gonna use a compensatory breathing strategy throughout the entire lift. Because if you think about where you're gonna position the bar in a back squat, you're gonna to try to retract the scapula to a degree. That's gonna create upper, uh, upper back compression. So dorsal rostral is gonna be compressed. Upper dorsal rostral is gonna be compressed. Um, you're gonna engage the, the lower posterior ribcage musculature like lats and things like that. So we're gonna to try to compress that. You're gonna compress everything that you can across the backside of the pelvis to, to make a, a very, very stable structure. You're gonna use the, your final compensatory strategy in the lower part of the pelvis where you're gonna drive the external rotation moment. You're gonna to try to compress this apex of the sacrum. So we want the minimum amount of eccentric orientation to allow us to get into that position because the minute that you release the concentric orientation to any significant degree, you are going to accelerate towards the ground under maximum loads, which is really not effective, especially in competition because you tend to not get your white lights under those circumstances. So again, so we're gonna actually limit this. So we don't wanna go past this, this concentric orientation. So your setup that you're talking about at the very beginning of the squat, yes, you're gonna, you're gonna charge your thorax with air and then you're gonna squeeze the bejesus out of it, cut it, cut it off at the throat with a vasalva, right? Because we don't wanna, we wanna create this incompressible body that we can stack a bunch of weight on top of. And I cannot release that at, at any significant degree during the lift, otherwise I am going to lose my position um, rather rather readily, and again, I'm gonna miss my lift. So the breathing that you're talking about um, in, in the, the competition squat is a compensatory strategy all day, every day. It's, it's concentric on concentric, and, and so we're not going to follow the normal mechanics that we would under a normal circumstance when we're talking about a regular, if you will, or a body weight squat, where we have this transition from expansion to compression to expansion again. The powerlifting squat is compression on compression on compression with the most minimum of eccentric orientation. That's why the box squat is so popular with powerlifters is because it does allow them to, to capture eccentric orientation at a depth Right? but it's the minimum allowed, and then they learn how to yield throughout the entire system. So all of their connective tissues are, are providing the yielding strategy to even get into position, which is why we tend to see connective tissue issues with a lot of power lifters. We see a lot of bony changes. 
with a lot of powerlifters over time because of the, the dramatic compressive strategies that, that they're utilizing. That affects blood flow to the joints, affects blood flow to the connective tissues, and, and you know, we got a whole world of hurt um, in, in our futures if we, if we don't uh, take care of ourselves. So I hope that clarifies a little bit of the yielding and overcoming strategy. You know, if, we, if we're looking at, at the, the powerlifting style squat at the bottom, you're gonna be as nutated as you can, but also compressed underneath, so I can't even create the position with my, my pelvis model because you're gonna probably bend the sacrum underneath you to a significant degree. Um, so, you know, from a health standpoint, from a powerlifting standpoint, it would behoove you to work on both styles of squat. One squat, obviously, for your maximum effort for competition purposes, and the other one to help you maintain some health and mobility. So again, I hope that, that helps you, Sandy. Uh, big S, small A, small N, big D. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great Wednesday. And then coaches call tomorrow and then it's chips and salsa day too. So I'll see you. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Welcome. This is the, obviously the Thanksgiving edition, right? I understand it's very foundational um, yeah. for evals and stuff or just movement. Yeah, um, it's just a starting. It's just a starting point. Just keep that in mind. It's just a starting point. Okay. Right. Um, going off that, if the goal is to get movement, um, you know, narrow to wide or wide to narrow, um, and let's say you get that change, I'm assuming. Can I stop you for a second. Can I stop you? Sorry. Don't say wide to narrow or narrow to wide because you're not going to change that. What okay. I would say is, is does it, can you get one to move? Okay. Cause you're not trying to change somebody. For, you're not trying to change a wide to a narrow or a narrow to a wide. Okay. It work. okay. So I just want to just, just want to interrupt you. So, so you you change your thought process a little bit. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I'm assuming the duration if it does change and like and you get movement, I'm assuming the longer that change lasts, the better. And um, with that um, assumption, do you find anything particularly helpful with having a longer change? Well, the, the longer the, the change, obviously that represents the, the potential adaptability, right? And, and so, um, just give you for instance. So we got a guy that's a you know six foot three, three hundred pound football player. He doesn't change much, right? Because um, one, we don't want him to change all that much, and and so um, because it's a performance related adaptation that we kind of know it's going to be somewhat restrictive on certain elements of, of of movement. When you're talking about, say, the rehab mode where adaptability is the primary concern. So we're trying to get as much adaptability into the system as possible because we don't know what's wrong. We never do. And so we're trying to get as much adaptability. And so we, we do want that to be maintained for a much longer period of time because, again, that represents the adaptability until it's time for them to do whatever it is that they do that would reduce their adaptability. So if, if they go back into some training process where they're trying to recapture some element of performance, then we know that that, that, that kind of thing is gonna change. And so 
um, under that circumstance, we would always want the ISA to be mobile, right? Um, because again, it is that foundation. It's, it's, it represents the first compensatory strategy for, if we look at the two extreme archetypes, it represents the first um, uh, um, compensatory strategy. So that's what stops the ISA from moving is when the diaphragm um, has a limited excursion. And if I can't move that, then I know that the rest of the stuff isn't going to move um, with its full relative capabilities. Um, I figured. Um, so with regards to the performance aspect, I know we've spoken about that multiple times, and I, but I, I, so my question is, we're trying to evaluate these kind of KPIs to see if that person has pain or has some sort of movement related issue. Yep. We're trying to evaluate the whole system to see, okay, well, what do they potentially need more of, or, you know, trying to figure out why that's happening. Right. Now, as you're saying, everyone has their individual kind of sweet spot. And um, I find it, obviously, I think it, the way that I see it so far is that, because I've been playing with that in the past few years, and it, it takes a long time to really develop that, like a lot of exposure to that person, personally, at least to find okay, this seems to be their sweet spot. This is kind of what they need. Yeah. Have you found a particular way of doing this? Either of like saying, okay, well, how are we going to correlate your hip range of motion with your sprinting sprint mechanics or with in order to have an easier time figuring this out, figuring like what are their KPIs, what's that spectrum? You know, mm -hmm. like Dan Papp would always talk about the spectrum of like, this is where they perform well. And like outside of that, no good. Right. So like, how do you go about figuring this out over time to say, mm -hmm. okay, this is what this person needs. Those are the KPIs. Okay. You're married, right? Yes. Okay. How did you figure out that she was the one? Well, a lot of exposure. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or you go on The Bachelor. Right, the Bachelor TV show, and that's how you find the right one. Right, you just weed them out. Okay. Um, no, you, you. It's exactly the way you describe it, and and you know everybody wants the like a like a shortcut process, and the reality is is that you kind of gotta get to know this person. Like, how do they respond to certain elements? You know, if you're dealing with the pain issue, um, obviously you have to induce enough enough adaptability to alleviate that first, right? And then you just start to superimpose the performance aspects back on, and then you monitor for, for the changes. You kind of know where they started, which is really, really good, because again, now you have a comparator from a performance aspect, and you say, you know what, if I get close enough to that presentation, chances are performance is going to go up, but, but that's going to be my, my indicator that I'm probably getting too close to you know, to where that they, they start to, to uh, create their own interference, right? And, and, but this is, this is why it's hard. This is why, this is why we don't have great answers, you know, uh, or predictive capability, right? Because we just don't know. So, so I think that, you know, you got to date your client a little bit, you know, and, and find out if she's the one, right? I mean, seriously, it's a, it, it, it's unfortunate. It would be really nice if we had these hard and fast rules, 
you know, and say, oh, when you have 17 degrees of hip internal rotation, that's bad. I don't know. Is it bad? What if it makes her faster? Right? You know, but maybe, you know, 15 degrees and now you've got interference. How are you going to know? You measure a bunch of stuff. You, you create the adaptability to alleviate the anything that is is interference and then you re-superimpose everything. You just bring them back, right? That, that's ultimately what the return to play process is, right? I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't think return to play is very special. Like, I don't even think we need a concept called return to play. We usually just call that training, right? It's just that where you're, where's your starting point? So if somebody's coming off of a surgery or an injury, right? They're just starting at a different place than somebody else that doesn't feel pain. But if we, if we monitor them the same way, you know, that's going to be the best, best way to figure out what is the, the um, desired outcome. Does the foot follow the pelvis when you're performing a hinge activity? Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, we are back on schedule. Um, and so we got to get busy today. So we're going to dig right into the Q&A. And this one comes from Mihail. And Mihail says, hey, Bill. Hey, Mihail. Can you please explain what's going on with the foot during a hinge? From my understanding, the bottom of the hinge, the pelvis and the femur go towards IR, but the foot supinates into ER. Then, as this movement reversed, the foot pronates IR, but the pelvis and hips ER. Is that correct, or am I missing something? Well, this is actually really, really interesting. It's actually a pretty good question, because um, it doesn't appear to be as clear and clean as we would like, but the principles hold in regards to the inner effects of, of movement, and as well as our transitions from, from inhaled to exhaled, to inhaled or ER to IR, to ER states. And so let's let's break this down into some pieces. We'll talk about the theoretical uh, representation first. So we have some, some frame of reference to work from. We'll talk about the hinge part first. And so when we talk about, about the difference between like a hinge and a squat, if, if, we, if we're gonna use that terminology, um, our hinge, we're gonna assume that we have full excursion of breathing available to us before we initiate the, the forward bend into the hinge, but the, the hinge is gonna bias us towards a nutated position of the sacrum. And what this allows is for the, the pelvis to move posteriorly as we bend forward, because otherwise if we didn't counterbalance, we'd just face plant. And so we need to have some element of, of posterior expansion. So we get that in that posterior lower aspect of the pelvis. This is going to move the acetabulum towards an IR position. So we get an, an IR position at the hip. And, and then if we, if we look on down the, the extremity, we're going to look at the knee. The knee's going to have to unlock. So it's, the knee's going to have to bend. And that's going to move towards internal rotation as well. So we'll have a tibia that's internally rotating on the, the femur, which would be the position that we need for normal knee flexion. And then if we go on down to the foot, then what we'll see is we'll see a, a foot that will move from its initial inhaled position, if you will, which would be ER supination. It'll move towards pronation. And that's going to happen somewhere in that general vicinity of about 90 degrees of the, the traditionally measured hip flexion in the imaginary sagittal plane. 
And then obviously to come out of that, we would just simply reverse, reverse gear. So we're gonna move from our IR position back to our, our ER position. Now, that's theoretical. So let's talk about reality because the way that these things get performed in the gym tends to not be so clean. And so what we'll typically see is we'll see people moving into their, their so-called hinge patterns like your Romanian deadlift would be, would be a, a, a good one as a representation is that most people are going to go past that, that theoretical 90 degrees of hip flexion, which means that we're going to move from our IR bias back to an ER bias, but we're also going to shift more load anteriorly. And so what that's going to do, when we talk about the forces down into the ground, we're going to move that, that foot towards its position of, of late propulsion, right? So, so as, I, as I would shift my, my foot forward, so the center of gravity is moving forward over the foot, what should happen is like if I was walking, I would be able to pick that heel up. But because we've got this posterior weight shift, the heel's gonna get stuck to the ground. So I've got a foot that's moving into an ER position, but I also have a pelvis that's moving into an ER position. So I have a constraint problem that I'm gonna run into. So as I nutate this and I start to, to, to flex forward, I get posterior expansion but I can only expand so much in this direction. And so then what I'm gonna to have to do, because I'm increasing the degree of hip flexion, I'm moving towards an ER inhale position, I'm actually gonna counter nutate. I'm gonna to move towards counter nutation, so I'm gonna post your expansion this way, which is still gonna help me keep my center of gravity backwards over my foot, but, but I've got this foot in a, in a late propulsive strategy. So this is where we're gonna see that, that ER position. Now, if everything's moving towards this, this ER position, even though I'm still forward bent, I still need to have an internal rotation force into the ground. And so where we're gonna see that occur is in the thoracolumbar junction. So we're gonna see that above the lumbar spine, and that's gonna give us enough downward force. So, so we need to have a, a position of the center of gravity that's towards the, the middle of, of, our, of our stance and, and slightly in front so we can maintain our balance. And so what we end up with in this scenario as we pass the, the IR element of, of this, this uh, hinging activity is we're gonna get uh, concentric overcoming posterior lower pelvis and thorax. We'll get a concentric yielding at the sacral base and in the dorsal rostral. And so it'll look something like that. Okay, and so this is going to be what we'll typically see in the gym. So if you ever work with Olympic weightlifters or you've done enough RDLs in, in your, your lifetime, this is what you're typically going to see. Now, we can also see some extreme versions of this. And so, so this is another representation. And what you're actually seeing is a much stronger compensatory strategy to get internal rotation at that thoracolumbar junction. So we're actually getting some of that that posterior lower compression coming into play. And so what this may be from a diagnostic standpoint is an indication that this person needs to capture some more internal rotation. Now, it is possible that we can get more internal rotation at the hip, but it's gonna depend on stance width um, and, and um, the actual orientation of the thorax as to whether we can acquire some of that internal rotation at the hip, but it is possible. Now. If we add load to this, obviously we're gonna get more compressive strategy. We're gonna get more superficial concentric orientation, which is immediately going to, to uh, limit um, what we're gonna have available to us. So when it comes to trying to recapture that, that uh, um, 
uh, internal rotated position is going to be much more difficult to do. And so a lot of times what you're going to see is you're going to see that a much earlier ER compensatory strategy under these circumstances. So you'll see people separate their knees as they're trying to, to initiate their hinge, or you'll see them have to make an adjustment in their, in their stance width. So Mihail, I would refer you to the kettlebell swing diagnosis video for an example of what I'm just talking about where we're seeing the, the extreme ER co compensatory strategies. So basically you can see that it's not as clean as we would like it to be, but the principles do hold. I'm moving from ER strategies to IR strategies to ER strategies under every circumstance. It's just a matter of where it's gonna happen. And that's gonna be dependent on how much movement we're, we're trying to acquire, how much load we're using, what's our stance width, and any pre-existing compensatory strategies. So great question, Mihail. Hope it's helpful for you. If I didn't answer your question effectively, then please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and have a great weekend. I'll see you guys next week.